I'm Rose Skeeters, host of From Borderline to Beautiful, a show about hope and recovery for BPD. Hello and welcome to another episode of From Borderline to Beautiful. I'm your host, Rose Skeeters, a licensed therapist, mindset coach, nutrition coach, and CVO of Skeeters Strength Mindset Coaching Systems. If you are just tuning in for part one of this eating disorder series, I am so happy to have you. I struggled with borderline personality disorder and eating disorders in the past and speak both from personal and clinical experience. If you would like to hear my story, check out episodes two and three in season one. Today, we're going to look at the clinical side of eating disorders. Please remember that this podcast is not a substitute for treatment, and rather, it's a place to find hope, help, and relatable content that you can use to supplement your recovery journey. Before I jump into the four types of eating disorders and their criteria, I just want to give a shout out to three individuals in particular that if you've been following along with the podcast, you may be familiar with. If not, I encourage you to go back to season one and two, the beginning of season two, and to listen to their recovery stories. First person I want to give a shout out to is Samantha Stilly. Sam has been on the podcast twice. I did a recovery story episode with her in the very beginning of the podcast. She was one of the first people that came to me through the podcast. I did a follow-up to her story talking about the business that she has started and the life that she has begun to live outside of that BPD brain. And now I want to give her a shout out. She has been, she just got engaged and she's found that person that she wants to be with in a healthy, stable, romantic relationship. And I'm just so happy for her and so proud of her efforts in order to be able to get to the place where she has someone that she's able to provide unconditional love and support to in this give-and-take, healthy relationship. The second person that I want to give a shout-out to is also on the podcast. Her name is Devin Green. Devin was um, a client of mine and still is a coaching client of mine, and she had been working with me to overcome a lot of childhood trauma and a lot of the issues in her past and to get through that BPD brain. Devin has had a roller coaster of an experience, but she has just been crushing it, and Devin Green also got married. Not only did Devin get married, but she's holding down a full-time job, and she just got promoted. Her little girl is doing so well, socially adjusted and chilling. Devin, Sam, myself, and everyone else that I know on the podcast or otherwise has growth work to do. So we just want to celebrate these huge milestones in the lives of Devin and Sam. Another person I want to give a shout out to is someone who reached out to me on Instagram and just to connect with me and just let me know that the podcast was really helpful for her. Her name's Becca. Thank you so much, Becca. She gave me a tip about how to link the podcast and the Instagram stories. And it's just so just wild to me how I can have this podcast and help her. She reaches out to me and then she teaches me a trick on tech so that I can help other people share the podcast more than I've been able to up until now. So thank you so much. Shout out to Sam, to Devin, and shout out to Becca. 
You guys are all doing so well and just awesome people. So with that being said, especially with Becca and that transition, if you all like this podcast and you could go on Apple Podcasts, give it a five-star review and write something that say how it impacted you, I would truly appreciate that. And the reason being is that what I found is Apple Podcasts will push the podcast to more of a wider audience with the more ratings and reviews that it gets. All right. So housekeeping stuff aside, let's jump in. There are four types of eating disorders, and I'm going to go over them them today. There are more eating disorders than these four types, and I can start touching on them later on in the series, but today I just want to go into the four main ones. Now, you may also notice some overlap between the criteria for these disorders and borderline personality disorder. So as I talk, see if you can spot these overlaps. All right. So the first eating disorder we are going to talk about is anorexia nervosa. Anorexia nervosa is a diagnosis where individuals view themselves as overweight, even if they are in fact dangerously underweight to the point that they are considered medically fragile and their bodies begin to break down. They constantly monitor their weight, avoid eating certain kinds and types of food, and severely restrict their calories. In order to be diagnosed with anorexia nervosa, an individual must meet certain criteria. They must restrict food intake leading to weight loss or a failure to gain weight, resulting in a significantly low body weight of what would be expected for someone's age, sex, and height. They must have an extreme fear of becoming fat or gaining weight and engage in persistent behaviors to refrain from gaining extra weight, even though they are actually underweight. Low confidence and self-esteem is actually directly related to body weight or body shape with anorexia nervosa. And people who are struggling with this diagnosis often are preoccupied with constant thoughts about food. Some people may even obsessively collect food items such as recipes, and some struggle with hoarding food. Individuals with anorexia nervosa have a distorted view of themselves and of their condition. So what do I mean by that? A distorted view of themselves and their condition. Well, examples of this might include the person thinking that they are overweight when they are actually underweight, like I said earlier or believing that they will gain weight from eating one single meal. A person with anorexia might also not believe there's a problem with being at a low body weight, even though their body is breaking down. These thoughts are known to professionals as distortions. So remember last week when we talked about black and white thinking as a cognitive distortion? You can see that the distortions in the BPD brain are similar to the distortions found in anorexia nervosa. And you'll see that throughout this explanation of the eating disorders and their criteria. There's so much overlap that if you struggle with both BPD and an eating disorder, it makes things a bit more complex. Anorexia nervosa can be broken down into two subcategories. These include a restricting type and a binge eating or purging type. 
The restricting type is a subtype typically associated with severe restriction of caloric intake. It's when an individual attempts to lose weight through dieting, fasting, and just intensive exercise, spending hours and hours at the gym. The person with this subtype does not regularly engage in binge eating. In the binge eating purging type, the person regularly engages in binge eating and purging behaviors, eating large amounts of food and then using self-induced vomiting and or the misuse of laxatives or diuretics or excessively exercising. This subtype may sound similar to the diagnosis of bulimia nervosa, right? Okay, however, there is no weight loss criterion for bulimia, bulimia nervosa, excuse me. So with anorexia, there has to be that weight loss criteria, meaning that underweight component. In the previous editions of the DSM, anorexia nervosa, quote unquote, trumps bulimia nervosa. So if you look like you're on the line and you meet criteria for both anorexia and bulimia, then anorexia nervosa, the binge eating purging type, is actually the diagnosis that would be chosen looking at the way that providers would diagnose eating disorders. So let's look at some warning symptoms of anorexia nervosa. If you're a loved one out there and you're worried as to whether or not the individual you love has anorexia, you can look and see if there's some emotional or behavioral changes. And these include dramatic weight loss, someone who would dress in layers to hide their weight loss, or just to stay warm because their body doesn't have that extra you know, fat or even layers of skin to keep themselves warm. That individual might also be preoccupied with weight, food, calories, fat grams, dieting. Maybe they refuse to eat certain foods, like only eating brown foods or not eating um, carbohydrates and just restricting whole categories of food. Maybe they make frequent comments about feeling fat or overweight despite losing a lot of weight. Do they complain about constipation, abdominal pain? Are they intolerant to cold, tired, excessively hungry, but then denying feeling hungry? How about food rituals? When they're eating a sandwich, do they take the bread off and take off the vegetables, cut things in little pieces, have to eat a sandwich in a certain way? With pizza, do they take apart the cheese and the toppings and pick the pizza apart and all cut it into little pieces and only eat certain parts of it? That would be an example of a food ritual. Do they cook meals for others but then not eat it themselves? Do they make excuses and avoid mealtimes? Do they express a need to burn off the calories taken in? How about being like concerned or overly concerned, like not wanting to eat in public? Do they have limited social spontaneity, meaning they don't want to go just out and do something and everything has to be planned out and they feel like they have a strong need for control? Do they have an intense fear of weight gain or being fat even though underweight? How about just this disturbed experience of body weight or shape, meaning like perceiving themselves to be more uh, heavier, let's say, than they actually are, denying that they have this seriously low body weight and they're going to, you know, be physically harmed by that. So those are some emotional signs. 
Physically, there's stomach cramps, difficulty concentrating, dizziness. You might even see an individual with anorexia faint or feel cold all the time, have sleep problems, have menstrual irregularities. Maybe they don't even get their period. Do they have cuts and calluses across the top of their finger joints, which would result in, you know, vomiting? So if you make yourself vomit, you'll get these cuts on your fingers. If their teeth are eroding away, you can look at, you know, maybe that from the uh, vomiting. Do they have dry skin? Is there this fine hair on their body? Do they have impaired immune functioning? Are they getting sick a lot? Is their skin a little yellow? muscle weaknesses. So you can start to see, you know, if you can see signs of their body getting sick and breaking down, then those are some physical signs of anorexia nervosa. In anorexia nervosa's cycle of self-starvation, the body is just denied the essential nutrients it needs to function normally. So the body's forced to slow down all of its processes to conserve energy. There are serious medical consequences to having anorexia nervosa. So fortunately, the body is generally resilient when, when it comes to coping with the stress of eating disorders. So you can look at laboratory tests and maybe they can appear perfect, right? And their doctor is saying, well, it doesn't look like there's anything going on. But we have to bear in mind with anorexia nervosa is it really plays with the person's life because when there's that electrolyte imbalance, it can kill without warning. You know, cardiac arrest can happen at any time. So it's very important to understand that eating disorders affect the body in a serious way. The second eating disorder we are going to look at is bulimia nervosa. Bulimia nervosa is another serious, potentially life-threatening eating disorder. It's characterized by a cycle of binging or purging behaviors, or they call them compensatory behaviors, such as self-induced vomiting, designed to undo or compensate for the effects of binge eating. The diagnostic criteria for bulimia nervosa, according to the DSM-5, is recurrent episodes of binge eating. So an individual must have an episode of binge eating that's characterized by eating a large amount of food in a discrete period of time, so within any two-hour period, that's definitely larger than what most people would eat during a similar period of time under similar circumstances. There also has to be a sense of lack of control over the eating during the episode. So the individual often feels like they can't stop eating or they can't control what or how much they're eating. In addition, the individual struggling with bulimia has inappropriate compensatory behavior, so those inappropriate purging behaviors, to prevent weight gain from those binge episodes. And some of these include self-induced vomiting, misuse of laxatives, diuretics, other medications. In my case, as you recall from season one, it was thyroid medication. Um, fasting, excessive exercise, could be at the gym, could be just walking or multiple exercise um, times throughout the day. The binge eating and inappropriate compensatory behaviors 
occur on average at least once a week for three months. And that self-evaluation, so the way that individuals with bulimia feel about themselves, is directly influenced by their body shape and their weight. Warning signs of bulimia nervosa are also things that we need to discuss for loved ones and for you if you're struggling. Let's start with the emotional and behavioral like we talked about with anorexia. So with individuals with bulimia, there's evidence of binge eating that you might find, maybe disappearances of large amount of food in short periods of time. You might find empty wrappers, containers in the car, hidden, stashed away in places, the bottom of the trash can. You'll see evidence of purging behaviors, frequent trips to the bathroom after meals. You might smell vomiting. You might see wrappers or packages of diuretics or little packages of chocolates. I know a lot of individuals that I've worked with have used those chocolate laxatives. So you'll see those little silver wrappers. Um, maybe they appear uncomfortable around others. Food rituals are also something that individuals with bulimia would engage in. When I talked about like excessive chewing or not allowing food to touch or taking apart food, cutting it into small pieces. You might skip meals or just take small portions of food. If you notice that someone with bulimia, you know, they disappear after they're eating and they often go to the bathroom, that's really something that you want to address. They might have a fear of eating in public places. They might have new food or fad diets that they're engaging in in this kind of cyclical way. Maybe they drink excessive amounts of water or Diet Coke, non-caloric beverages, Diet Soda, Diet Pepsi too. <laughs> Um, using excessive amounts of mouthwash or gum, hiding their body with baggy clothes. Maybe there's a swelling in their cheek or jaw area from the distress that the vomiting is putting on their body. Maybe their teeth are discolored or they look bloated from fluid retention. They might show extreme concern with body weight or shape, frequently checking in the mirror for perceived body flaws, maybe pinching themselves, taking selfies, and just frequently being hyper-focused and obsessed with, these, with their body. There's some extreme mood swings that you'll see and then a lack of control over the ability to stop eating. In addition to these emotional and behavioral consequences, there are physical ones as well. And as I talk about the different disorders, you'll notice that there's a lot of overlap between anorexia, bulimia, and the other disorders with the way that it presents. So if you're seeing anything that looks off and distressing in relation to food and weight and you're a loved one, we want to check in with the individual, not in, a, in an accusatory way, but in a way that shows love and care and concern. Remember that eating disorders come with it guilt, and shame. So they may not right off the bat say, oh yes, I'm struggling with this, but you can be a silent support for the person that may be struggling. In terms of physical characteristics or physical signs of someone with bulimia, there might be fluctuations in weight both up and down. And the body weight is in normal range. The person might be overweight, but it's not, they're not going to, you know, look, you're not going to look at them and go, oh, they have bulimia, right? They have stomach cramps, other nonspecific gastrointestinal complaints. And what they mean by that is constipation, acid reflux. A person with bulimia might have difficulty concentrating, maybe even have abnormal lab findings. 
So low thyroid levels, anemia, low potassium, because all of that vomiting creates electrolytes imbalance. They might dizzy, feel faint, have syncope, feel cold all the time, have dry skin, fine hair on the body, have thinning of hair on the head, yellow skin. Maybe they have swelling in their legs, hands, feet. They might have impaired immune functioning. And people with bulimia nervosa also struggle with co-occurring co conditions like self-injury, substance abuse, impulsivi impulsivity, excuse me, and DM bulimia, which is when individuals with bulimia intentionally misuse insulin for type 1 diabetes. It's another compensatory or purging behavior. So as you can see, there's a lot of overlap here with bulimia, BPD, anorexia. There's the need for control, self-injury, substance abuse, impulsivity, basing, this idea, this identity or sense of self or sense of confidence on external validation and this body weight, size, or shape. So it's as if the individual with BPD is finding the identity that they're lacking and seeking in these disordered eating behaviors. There are extreme health consequences for bulimia, just as there were with an anorexia. And because these recurrent binge and purge cycles can affect the entire digestive system. Again, leading to electrolyte chemical imbalances in the body that affect the heart and other major organs. So remember, electrolyte imbalances can kill and cardiac arrest can happen at any time. So if you're in denial about having an eating disorder and you do want to live and recover, seek out support and professional help in order to stabilize your body so you can begin that process of recovery. The next disorder we're going to discuss is binge eating disorder. Binge eating disorder, like anorexia and bulimia, is a severe, life-threatening, and treatable eating disorder. Binge eating disorder is characterized by recurrent episodes of eating large quantities of food, often very quickly and to the point of discomfort. That feeling of a loss of control during the binge exists with binge eating disorder, and individuals often experience that same level of shame, distress, or guilt found in bulimia nervosa after a binge. The difference between binge eating disorder and bulimia nervosa is that those individuals don't, with, uh, with binge eating disorder, excuse me, do not regularly use unhealthy compensatory measures to counter the binge eating. Binge eating disorder is actually among the most common eating disorder in the United States, and it's also one of the newest eating disorders formally recognized in the DSM-5. Before, in the DSM-4-TR, binge eating disorder was listed as a subtype of EDNOS, which is eating disorder not otherwise specified. We'll talk about that next. It's called um, otherwise specified feeding disorder now. This change is important because insurance companies will not cover eating disorder treatment without a DSM diagnosis. So basically what we're saying here is that the DSM-5 in 2013 said that binge eating disorder, even though there's not that compensatory behavior, is so severe that we have to list it as a diagnosis because these individuals deserve the right to treatment for their eating disorders and for that treatment to be covered under their insurance company so that they can get the help that they need. 
because when it was covered or listed under eating disorder not otherwise specified, it was not covered by insurance. So people with struggling with binge eating disorder weren't able to gain access to residential treatment for individuals with eating disorders. And it was very invalidating and just, you know, not fair, let's say, for individuals who struggled with binge eating disorder. When I was in residential treatment, I remember people would lie about purging because they had a problem but couldn't meet criteria enough to get help. So this is a huge change. It's a big deal for us in the field. Diagnostic criteria for binge eating disorder are recurrent episodes of binge eating, eating in a discrete period of time, that two-hour period, an amount of food that's definitely larger than what most people would eat in a similar period of time. People with binge eating disorder also experience that sense of lack of control over eating. Binge eating episodes are associated with three or more of the following. Eating much more rapidly than normal. Eating until feeling uncomfortably full. Eating large amounts of food when not physically hungry. Eating alone because of feeling embarrassed by how much you're eating. Feeling disgusted with oneself, depressed, or so very guilty afterward. There's distress regarding binge eating, and it's something that the person is really hyper-focused on, and it impairs their ability to live their daily life. It has to occur once a week for three months to meet criteria, and the binge eating can't be associated with inappropriate compensatory behaviors like with bulimia. We have warning signs for binge eating disorder, and again, they're going to overlap with the warning signs for bulimia and anorexia. So there has to be evidence of binge eating, including disappearance of large amounts of food, appearing uncomfortable eating around others, practicing new fad diets, having that fear of eating in public, stealing or hoarding food in strange places, creating lifestyle schedules or rituals to make time for binge sessions is something that's indicative of a behavioral change for binge eating disorder, withdrawal from family, friends, and activities, showing concerns with body weight and shape, checking their body, having those recurrent episodes of binge eating, expressing fluctuations um, in weight through physical appearance, feeling like they have low self-esteem, feeling disgusted with themselves, or eating alone because they're embarrassed at the sheer quantity of food that they're eating. Physical signs may be noticeable fluctuations in weight, both up and down on that scale, constipation, acid reflux, and difficulty concentrating. Binge eating disorder has health risks associated with it that are very serious and life-threatening, and that is why it deserves to have the category of its own in the DSM. Clinical obesity, weight stigma, weight cycling are some of these health risks. People who are labeled clinically obese do not have binge eating disorder. However, that's an important distinction. Of the individuals with binge eating disorder, up to two-thirds are labeled clinically obese. While people who are struggling with binge eating disorder tend to be of normal or higher than average weight, but it can be diagnosed at any weight. So don't use weight as a measure of whether or not the individual has binge eating disorder or not. It is important to look at the behaviors that are engaged in to see whether or not that individual meets the criteria. The person has to experience marked distress and disturbances 
due to these binge eating behaviors. The last eating disorder diagnosis that I want to discuss today is called Other Specified Feeding or Eating Disorder, OSFED. Now, this was previously known as eating disorder not otherwise specified. When I was in treatment, having a diagnosis of binge eating disorder or eating disorder not otherwise specified were two things that added more shame onto having this diagnosis of having an eating disorder. It's as if the more quote-unquote acceptable diagnoses were bulimia and anorexia. If you're out there and you feel this way, and you've given been a, you have been given a diagnosis of ednos or OSFED, I want you to know that it is not true that OSFED, ednos, binge eating disorder are any less serious than anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa or any less validating to the pain that you are experiencing. Now, for those of you out there that cannot relate to what I'm saying, eating disorder not otherwise specified or other specified feeding or eating disorders in the DSM, that's what it's called now, is a catch-all classification that's sometimes denied by insurance companies for coverage for treatment because it was seen as less serious. But it is serious and life-threatening. It's also treatable. This category was developed to encompass individuals who do not meet strict criteria for anorexia or bulimia, but they still have a significant eating disorder. The majority of individuals actually have who have actual diagnoses of eating disorders, they are and they fall in this Ednos category. So it is a serious diagnosis, and over time insurance companies have begun to recognize it, begun to recognize it more and more. We also have to look at the research. So even though it's a catch-all diagnosis, it shows that the disorder is just as severe as other eating disorders. Children hospitalized for Ednos had just as many medical complications as children hospitalized for anorexia nervosa. Adults with atypical or subclinical anorexia or bulimia scored just as high on measures of eating disorder thoughts and behaviors as those with anorexia and bulimia. People with Ednos according to research, were just as likely to die as a result of their eating disorder as anorexia or bulimia. So if you're listening and you hear this and you think, oh gosh, this is my diagnosis, great. I'm not even good enough to do an eating disorder right. That is not true. Every individual that struggles with anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, or other specified feeding or eating disorders, otherwise known or previously known as ednos, you are all just as likely to die from the serious life-threatening complications of electrolyte imbalances, cardiac arrest that could occur from having the body break down from the compensatory behaviors and the obsessive restricting binging behaviors. That being said, we want to talk about these evaluation and diagnosis and clarify some of the definitions um, of this OSFED. 
So changes to the latest edition of the DSM were meant to clarify definitions of anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating disorder so that eating disorders could be more accurately diagnosed. That way we would reduce the number of OSFED diagnoses. So that way people can get the coverage that they need. Remember that the DSM exists so that insurance companies know what code they need to write down, how much they're going to pay for the treatment. So don't allow that to invalidate you. Know your symptoms, know yourself, get the help that you need. Some warning signs of OSFED are dramatic weight loss, behaviors and attitudes that indicate weight loss, dressing in layers, being preoccupied with weight and food, denying feeling hungry, evidence of purging behaviors like frequent trips to the bathroom, appearing uncomfortable around others, disappearing after eating, skipping meals, yo-yo dieting, stealing, hoarding food, having discolored teeth, unusual swelling in the cheeks or jaw area, look, looking bloated from fluid retention, frequently checking themselves in the mirror, selfies, having extreme mute, mood swings, abusing laxatives, pills, exercise, like excessive exercise, all of the very similar things for other um, eating disorders that we talked about today. So if we look at examples of other specified feeding and eating disorders, there are five that have been identified in the DSM to help with identifying the severity of this disorder. Atypical anorexia nervosa is one. It's when all criteria are met except the significant rate weight loss. So you can have anorexia but not have that weight criterion. Binge eating disorder of low frequency or limited duration, meaning all the criteria for binge eating disorder are met, but at a lower frequency and for less than three months. Bulimia nervosa of low frequency and or limited duration. That's when all of the criteria for bulimia nervosa are met, except that binge eating and inappropriate compensatory behavior. Purging disorder, which is just recurrent purging behavior to influence weight or shape, but there isn't the binge eating component and then night eating syndrome, which is recurrent episodes of eating at night after waking up from sleep or by excessive food consumption after you've already eaten your evening meal, dinner. The behavior can't be better explained by environmental influences or some cultural or social norms. It causes significant distress and impairment. So these five are things that you can look at to sort of further hone in on the you know different nuances with disordered eating so they're not missing people. So non-eating uh, disorder not otherwise specified was the catch-all diagnosis or so the aim of the DSM. And the aim of just treatment in general is to not invalidate an individual's experience, but to also be so specific and, you know, to be able to let the insurance company know this is severe. We really need you to cover this. This requires residential treatment. We have to get this person medically stabilized so they're at the point where they can begin the um, identity development and uh, um, cognitive behavioral therapy aspect of recovery. Medical stabilization is always the first goal when we're looking at recovery from eating disorders. So in conclusion, we have four eating disorders, anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, 
binge eating disorder, and Ednos, O-S-F-E-D. It's hard for me to get used to that, having had that Ednos label for a while in my own treatment. What I hope the takeaway is for you here today is that there is an overlap between the identity disturbance, self-esteem, confidence, and control that exists within the BPD brain and all of these disorders. Unfortunately, if you've been given a diagnosis of BPD, EUPD, CPTSD, and a diagnosis of having an eating disorder, there's a complexity that occurs within treatment and just within the way that you would proceed in developing an identity. Because of spending so much time in residential treatment facility myself for having eating disorders and not having a lot of those other issues that I actually struggle with addressed, I'll spend the next several sessions talking about eating disorder from a clinical, eating disorder treatment from a clinical perspective, excuse me, and eating disorder treatment from a personal perspective. I'll also talk about body dysmorphic disorder. I'll talk about the long-term effects of having an eating disorder. And I wanna talk a little bit about how to fit into society who also has some dysfunctional eating disorder, disordered behavioral messages sent through commercials and things like that. So we really wanna dig deep into eating disorders over the next few weeks, few episodes, so you can get some of the answers that you're looking for. It's very important that you start to think about whether or not your identity disturbances in borderline personality disorder are sort of cured, quote unquote, through the eating disorder. What I mean by that is, I've said before that like, what we do, we are like what we do, right? So if day in and day out, I spend my time waking up, I have my journal and in my journal, I have listed out how many calories I'm going to eat that day, what exactly I'm going to eat, how I'm going to get through starving myself. Or if I have listed on my to-do item, I need to get to CVS or I need to get to that pharmacy so I could buy my laxatives or I need to get to the gym and, you know, hyper-focusing on those things. And then I come home and I obsessively change my clothes. Or when I'm out in public, I'm not really out in public with other people. I'm looking at my reflection in the mirror. I'm pinching my skin. I'm taking selfies of myself so that I can measure my face, my bloatedness from one day to the next. Maybe I have two sets of clothes, one set of clothes for fat days and one set of clothes for thin days. And fat days, I'm a bad person and thin days, I'm a good person. Or maybe there's some sort of number on the scale. When I wake up, I get on the scale. And if it says this number, I'm going to have a good day. But if it says this number, then I should kill myself. Then I'm not a good person. Or maybe you have a therapist that's telling you fat is not a feeling. And you just hate that. Right? Fat is not a feeling. And you say to yourself, you look in the mirror and you say, fat is a feeling. Because I feel fat. Well, I'll have to ask you. Is your identity in your eating disorder? Oftentimes people ask me what the first thing, what should the first thing be treated? If I have BPD, should I get treated for BPD? Should I get treated for my eating disorder? The answer to that question is if you have an eating disorder as listed out in one of these um, segments of the episode today, you need to get treated for your eating disorder. The reason for that is because cardiac arrest and electrolyte imbalance can happen at any moment in time. 
When I had an eating disorder, I didn't meet criteria for anorexia or bulimia nervosa the first time I went into treatment. I was so medically fragile and unstable that I was put into a room with women on feeding tubes. I didn't appear physically that I was that sick, but my heart was under so much stress that they had to give me fluids and really take care of me. I wasn't able to leave my bed. I was on bed rest. But if you looked at me, you'd go, oh, she's not sick. So my point in telling you that is that you have to be sure that your body is not breaking down. You need to get those fluids, get hydrated, get those nutrients back. And that takes a little bit of time for your body to readjust. So once you've had that treatment, then you can go ahead and seek treatment for BPD. But it's important not to dismiss or be in denial about the severity of your eating disorder symptoms because at any moment in time, your body could break down because of those behaviors. All right, so we're going to wrap up here for today. And next week, we'll continue to dive into eating disorders. We'll be more of a forum to ask and answer questions. So if you have questions, please continue to send them in. And thank you to everyone who's done so already. Okay, thanks for listening. That was from Borderline and Beautiful, a production of Skeeter's Strength Mindset Coaching Systems, LLC, online coaching that helps frustrated individuals, resentful couples, and disconnected families navigate through tough times. Visit us on the web at skeeterstrength.com. If you like this show, remember, you can hear it on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, or any app you use to listen to podcasts. Subscribe to get a new episode every week. Next time on the show, we'll continue to talk about moral compass work. We have communication skills, parenting skills, eating disorders, and a lot of other awesome things for you. If you want to get in touch, you can leave me a voice message. Some of you had some comments and questions from the last episode, so let's hear them. I'd love to hear whatever questions you have, too. Just download the Anchor mobile app, search for From Borderline to Beautiful, and tap the message button to send me a voice message. All right. We made it. Thanks again for listening. I'm Rose Skeeters, and I'll be back next week with another episode of From Borderline to Beautiful. Talk to you then.